1.5 million more workers filed for unemployment insurance last week. This brings the total to 45 million. 45 million. An additional 1.5 million workers filed for unemployment insurance for the first time last week. A drop of just 58,000 claims from the week before, despite reopening efforts nationwide. And remember, I told you this. I don't want to be like, oh, I told you so. But I said this weeks ago. What exactly does reopening the economy even mean? Because an economy, you kind of need, uh, what do they call them? Customers. Well, if millions and millions of people have been laid off, millions more have had their hours cut, millions more getting um, reduced salary, you're going to reopen economies and, and, and what? You're not going to have, in a lot of cases, enough business to warrant to even meet your overhead. Consumers make up the economy. If consumers have only gotten a $1,200 check, which was spent in 10 seconds for most people, if consumers who have lost their job are, are struggling just to get unemployment, I'm about to show you the eight-hour line from Kentucky, you don't just reopen the economy and magically everything gets put back together. You have 1.5 million more people filing for unemployment. This is the 13th straight week where more than a million people have filed for unemployment. Previous record before the pandemic was in 1982. Uh, the numbers come as the country's reopening is in nearly full swing in many states. Total number of people receiving benefits edged down slightly to 20.5 million. More than 45 million have uh, filed for unemployment at some point during the pandemic. About 9.2 million people are also receiving unemployment from a new supplemental benefit available to self-employed and gig workers, bringing the total numbers receiving benefits to about 29 million. The number of initial jobless claims has slowed as employers have begun rehiring workers as businesses reopen, and there have been other positive indications. Retail sales spiked 17.7% in May, although they continue to be down nearly 8% since February. So the unemployment rate remains the highest it's been since the Great Depression. The official rate is 13.3%, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that it would have been closer to 163 if not for an error its workers are making in the data collection. Why that's really troubling is you have the official unemployment number and then the real unemployment number. The last time uh, the real unemployment number was checked, it was closer to 25%. Look at this line. You know, the Democrats were pushing, oh, we get $600 unemployment. Yeah, that's, that's if you could actually get the unemployment. This is Kentucky yesterday, an eight hour line, eight hour line, just to speak with a human being for unemployment. It's an eight hour line. And by the way, they had to cap the line. It would have been longer, but officials basically said beyond the eight hour line, yeah, no more people were capping the line. So that's just in Kentucky. Here's a little bit more. After not receiving benefits, hundreds flocked to Frankfurt again to resolve unemployment issues. 
For the second straight day, hundreds descended upon Kentucky State Capitol on Wednesday, hoping to resolve their unemployment claims after weeks or months of not receiving benefits. Unemployment insurance staff unexpectedly set up shop in the Capitol Education Center on Tuesday to help people navigate claims after a small protest popped up nearby. By Tuesday evening, a few hundred people had been seen, with many reporting they should see their long-awaited money by the end of the week. Unemployment staff returned at 9 a.m. Wednesday, and the Office of Unemployment Services later announced it will continue in-person services on Thursday and Friday for those with outstanding claims from March and April. Uh, state unemployment offices are not really set up for depressions. They're not really set up for global pandemics. Uh, most of them have old equipment. Um, most of them, you know, are basically set up for your run-of-the-mill uh, unemployment claims. So when you have 1.5 million a week in the U.S., you break that down state by state, most of them are overrun. I mean, these numbers are staggering. And this is from Vox. I'm just showing you, like, since the coronavirus became a thing, I mean, look at these lines all over the country. This is for food uh, in Utah. Food in Massachusetts. Volunteers handing out potatoes donated by Washington Potato Farms in Washington State. This is from May. This is uh, cars wait for food assistance in Orlando, Florida, May. A line for lunch at Sharing and Caring in Minneapolis, end of March. People wait for line in Brooklyn, May, for food at a mosque. Food, clothing, and water, Pennsylvania, end of April. Pickup truck waits for food, Utah, end of April. Work furloughs and layoffs are driving thousands in San Francisco for food. Hundreds of cars wait to receive food. Greater Community Bank in uh, Duquesne, Pittsburgh. And in March, I mean lines and lines and lines, Greater Pittsburgh. It's still going on. People are still waiting for food. People are still waiting for unemployment. And this, millions relying on pandemic aid can see it end and they're scared. For millions of Americans left out of work by the coronavirus pandemic, government assistance has been a lifeline preventing a plunge into poverty, hunger, and financial ruin. This summer, that lifeline could snap. The $1,200 checks sent to most households are long gone, at least for those who needed them most, with little imminent prospect for a second round. The lending program that helped millions of small businesses keep workers on the payroll will wind down if Congress does not extend it. By the way, I have heard on social media, a lot of people haven't even gotten those $1,200 checks yet. So I think even though uh, obviously it's very important that these protests have gotten major coverage, I think kind of lost in the protests uh, is the fact that we're kind of living in a quiet, silent depression what do you call 45 million people filing for unemployment? If you look at the 2008 financial crash, companies learned how to do more with less. They didn't hire back 
all of the workers laid off when conditions started to get more favorable. We already started to see before coronavirus. Go to your CVS, go to your Target, go to your movie theater, go to, you know, fill in the blank. Self-checkout, Walmart, self-checkout. Many, many, many industries removing cashiers, human bodies with machines and robots. That will continue and be expedited. Businesses that have lost money and possibly manage to come back from this, possibly instead of hiring back all of their workers, are going to try and do more with less, including the things I just described, more uh, automized workers. And part of the problem is cable news and corporate media can't manage to do two things at once. They could only cover one thing at once or two things at once. Now it's, you know, John Bolton and all the salacious details of his book. I, I don't feel the need to cover it. But how many people, you know, you're talking one-tenth of the country right now, unemployed. That's not, the, that's not even to count how many people have out, had their hours cut. How many people maybe have been bumped from full-time now to freelance with those hours cut? How many people soon are going to be forced to pay more into their health care if they are lucky enough to still have health care through their employer? Have vacation time cut or other benefits cut? Meanwhile, meanwhile, markets may crash so badly that the Fed has to start buying stocks. The Federal Reserve is buying junk bonds and corporate debt ETFs as part of its campaign to revive the American economy. Next on its shopping list, U.S. stocks, as Scott Minard, a global chief investment officer at Guggenheim Partners, told CNN Business. The S&P 500 has skyrocketed 40% since March 2nd and 3rd when the Fed announced its unprecedented experiment with junk bonds. That surge, coming in the face of the collapse of the real economy, drove up market valuations to dot-com bubble levels. But Minard thinks a reckoning is coming, and soon. He expects the S&P 500 will retest its March 23rd low of 2,237 over the next month, potentially crumbling as low as 1,600. That would mark a 49% collapse from where the index traded Tuesday during a strong rally. So in English, folks, the Federal Reserve is going to continue buying up junk stocks so that corporations do not suffer. Not so you don't suffer, but so that corporations do not suffer. You just can't make this stuff up. But in making sure those corporations stay in business and don't suffer, they're not making sure people who work for the corporations keep their jobs. No. The strings were already, the, the, the loose strings that were attached to the first corporate bailout Boeing's starting to lay off people. Airlines are starting to lay off people, even though part of the condition of getting, them getting that money was you cannot lay people off. It's just remarkable. It's truly, truly remarkable what's going on. And by the way, this isn't even, we haven't even gotten to the fact. This isn't even to mention, folks, uh, the, uh, the moratorium on evictions starts to expire like in two days here in New York possibly in other places too. Look at this. Since a statewide moratorium on evictions was first enacted in March, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has insisted that he, quote, took care of the rent issue. 
He says that the moratorium solves the problem of renters being unable to stay in their homes in the middle of a pandemic and that the most vulnerable are protected. But that isn't the full picture. Cash-strapped New York tenants are still expected to pay what could end up being months worth of back rent once the moratorium expires. Despite pressures from the tenant, from tenant advocates and elected officials for greater rent and mortgage relief, the governor has deferred action. During a press briefing on Memorial Day, he maintained that if we're still in this chaos in August, we'll figure it out then. That's cold comfort to some tenants, especially come late June, June 20th to be specific, two months from now, who may slip between the cracks of a porous eviction moratorium. The moratorium is, a, is in effect until August 20th, but Lopez, who was mentioned earlier in the story, still may have little choice but to eventually leave her apartment or risk being evicted. She lives in an unregulated unit and as the recipient of disability, disability benefits has not lost income as a result of COVID-19. That wouldn't have mattered under Cuomo's initial 90-day moratorium, but when the governor extended the pause with a new executive order in May, it came with significant changes. Chief among them is that as of June 20th, two days from now, the moratorium will only apply to tenants who have suffered a, quote, financial hardship because of COVID-19 or, or who qualify for unemployment. That means people like Lopez, along with undocumented immigrants and many with pending eviction cases, could soon find themselves in court with little recourse to fight an eviction during a public health crisis that has claimed more than 21,000 lies from New York City. And because the language of the governor's order extending the moratorium is vague, it has opened the door for loose interpretation from the court system, leaving more tenants vulnerable to becoming homeless amid the outbreak of an infectious disease. Let me just break that down for you in English, folks. The moratorium is supposed to go till August 20th, but Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York who the corporate media has elevated to hero levels. He's the new leader of the resistance. A lot of Democrats are still crossing their fingers that he'll be airlifted into the DNC in Milwaukee to replace comatose Joe Biden. Uh, technically, the eviction moratorium begins to get peeled back in two days from now. And I've already heard uh, from tenants saying, oh, yeah, my, my uh, landlord has told me you got till Saturday. So landlords are already taking advantage because Cuomo's moratorium, eviction moratorium, was written purposely vague. So you're going to see from New York to other areas, people starting to get evicted. And if, if they're lucky, going to court and successfully getting that those evictions stopped. By the way, still during a pandemic. Boy, the establishment is coming out to stop Jamal Bowman here in New York. Uh, Bowman, the uh, middle school principal who has gotten a huge amount of momentum uh, and in, in one poll, Data for Progress poll, is up over Elliot Engel, who's just, you know, another dime a dozen corporatist. He's the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, let's look now that Elliot Engel is down the, the, the length uh, that his campaign is going to try and smear Jabal Bowman. In Albany, they keep records of taxes. Type in a name. Records show Jamal Bowman repeatedly failed to pay his own taxes. 
the state of New York filed six tax warrants against Mr. Bowman. Six warrants. And he still owes thousands. Shouldn't Mr. Bowman pay his own taxes before he tries to spend hours? DMFI PAC is responsible for the content of the... So what's remarkable about this, not only is Elliot Engel uh, getting a lot of help from Democratic Majority for Israel, which is an Israeli, you know, Zionist super PAC, Intercept also broke that he's getting all this money from a Republican super PAC. Why is a Republican super PAC trying to reelect Elliot Engel and feel so threatened by a middle school principal? And now they're smearing Jamal Bowman for the crime of having debt, which, by the way, the district that he's trying to represent, District 16, half of it is the Bronx, some of the poorest areas in the community, which I guarantee you he'd be representing people that also have debt and might be a little late on his taxes. It's just so interesting that these are the attacks coming out. And by the way, uh, let's give you Jamal Bowman's response. Hello, everyone. I uh, hope all is well with you. It's Jamal Bowman running for Congress here in the 16th District. Uh, so Elliot Engel is allowing a super PAC to, you know, put out some, some negative ads against us. You know, it's fine. We expected it. You know, it is what it is. When you've been beaten at every point in the campaign, the only thing you can resort to is attack ads. Um, so there's this one out talking about how Jamal Bowman doesn't pay his taxes and he, and he owes thousands of tax, thousands of dollars in taxes. And, um, you know, there have been six warrants issued, you know, to Jamal Bowman to pay his taxes. Why doesn't he pay his taxes? So first of all, they say I owe thousands uh, and the number is 2,000, not 100,000, not 50,000, not 10,000. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, I file taxes every year. Uh, my balance with the state is zero right now. Um, you know, what Elliot Engel's referring to or what this pack was referring to is a debt I had from 2004 that I didn't even know about until they started uh, researching and exploring, you know, my background. And now that I know about it, I'm working to pay it off. Like millions of Americans who have some kind of debt in some capacity, you pay it off and it is what it is. So because I owe 2000 like I'm not qualified to be a representative. Um, it's crazy, man. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, drowning people clutches straws, you know, and that's what that's that's what's happening now. So it's a debt from 2004. I just found out about it through their research, paying it off. Uh, I've been a city employee my whole life. When you're a city employee, you owe money. They take your money or they find you and put you in jail. I've been able to save, clear my debt, buy a home. I don't know, you know, but he's desperate. Peace and love, everyone. Just wanted to clear that up. Thanks. Honestly, I think that's going to help Jamal Bowman. So, honestly, um, what is this? Why should this race matter to you? Honestly, any race where you could get it. By the way, the progressive, the primary is the election, the general election. Whoever wins the primary is going to win easily because it's a Democratic district. Um, you get another progressive, that's another number. That's an additional number to add to the progressive ranks. Right now, you got AOC, Rashida Tlaib, who's vulnerable in her primary, Ilhan Omar, Ro Khanna, Mark Pocan, Pramila Jayapal, maybe a couple others that are kind of you know, on the line as far as progressive credentials. 
you get more numbers, that's when you could actually start having leverage. That's when you could actually potentially block some of the terrible things Pelosi is doing. That's where you're able to stop Pelosi driving the getaway car as Trump and McConnell robbed the Treasury. Can't get enough of that graphic. This is how you stop. Now, Jamal Bowman getting elected in itself, in it will not give us the numbers we need in, in, its, in of itself, but it's just one more progressive body, not to minimize him, because I think he's qualified, uh, to finally start doing some blocking of toxic um, legislation, to finally take the outside-inside strategy and start making demands and having the numbers to actually hold up some of this neoliberal corporatist crap. So it does make a difference. Um, and it, it does definitely, definitely, definitely um, help set the conditions for more progressives to run and defeat establishment candidates. Uh, then you have Charles Booker uh, in Kentucky. Chuck Schumer has, I mean, literally, they poured in over $30 million to Amy McGrath, uh, who, if you watch her ads or seen her in the debate, is a tall, empty glass of water. You know, military service, that's great, but she ain't proposing anything. I think she's proposing in Kentucky that I'll be the strongest Democrat to work with President Trump. Great. Another enabler. That's what Kentucky needs. So you look at uh, this race. Booker, according to a Data for Progress poll, Data for Progress was pretty on point in the Democratic primaries. Uh, most of the time their polls ended up, uh, the results were close to their polls. Uh, Booker's up eight points over McGrath, who probably by the end of it will outspend Booker tw uh, 20 to 1. But that's not the only interesting part. Not only is Booker up uh, eight points, McGrath, look at that favorable rating versus unfavorable. It's a minus, I think that 34, it's a minus 35. Favorable to unfavorable. This is the strongest candidate, Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer was lobbying her to run for Senate before she even lost her congressional race because she ran for Congress. It's almost like the Democrats are intentionally picking people they know will lose. Booker's got a, you know, plus four. Positive to unfavorable. And I got news for you. The general electorate in Kentucky, my guess is a lot of people still don't know him. Still lacking the name recognition. McConnell, underwater. But McGrath, a minus 35 favorability rating, probably because she's had $30 million. So she has just carpeted the airwaves with advertisements. And the more people see, because she's not authentic, she's not proposing anything bold economically. It's a lot of neoliberal talk about protecting Obamacare and this, that, and the other thing. The more people see her, the more they don't like her. And when Schumer was asked about this, he says, Amy McGrath is our candidate. She's a strong candidate. She's doing very well. And I believe that she'll win her primary. And I believe that she'll give McConnell a run for his money. Well, she'll definitely give the donors a run for their money. As in wasting their money. 
I think this Kentucky primary is very, very important. It's definitely not going to be an easy task uh, to defeat Mitch McConnell. But it will to, to show what happens when you actually get a progressive with a bold vision up against somebody like Mitch McConnell. I think it will show the results will be much closer with Booker versus McConnell, a much greater contrast. Uh, Eastern Kentucky happens to be very poor. So Booker can bring in a lot of people from Eastern Kentucky that certainly aren't being served by Mitch McConnell. And you never know. McConnell could be taken out along with, the ti- along with you know, in, in an anti-Trump tidal wave, even in Kentucky, where Trump is doing very well. So it will be very interesting to see, because this is still the broader fight nationally between the Hillary Clinton, Obama, Schumer, Pelosi wing of the Democratic Party, which is basically just country club Republicans pretending to be woke, wearing their, what was that? The neck garb they wore while kneeling? Kentacloth? You know, the, the pretend woke people from Wokeback Mountain. If progressives could take out these primary challengers in two primaries, then you have Bowman pretty much winning because the general election there is the primary, basically. And then you have a real fight. Again, I don't want to be dishonest. McConnell's not going to be easy to take down. But I think Booker would have a shot. As it stands right now, let me go to the polls uh, where they were. So if the elections were held today, McConnell is up 14 over Booker, factoring in a a third candidate, but he's up 20 over McGrath. This is Chuck Schumer's pick. This is the person that's gotten $30 million, who's been on air constantly in Kentucky. So Booker, who I'd say a large portion of Kentucky doesn't even know yet, down just 14. I don't want to say just 14. That's a significant amount. But it's not insurmountable. Whereas you have McConnell up 20. And McConnell will just dust off the old playbook that he has run against other corporatist neoliberal Democrat candidates. Wrap them around the head of Pelosi. Pump out ads against Pelosi, Obama. That he cannot do that with Charles Booker. So it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting to see the outcome of the Kentucky election as well as the New York uh, primary on Tuesday.